Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans, chapter 10. We're going to look at these first 13 verses in this passage of Scripture today. Remember, we've said that the theme of Romans, we're, we're calling it the letter that changed the world. It's the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and it has such a transformational truth about grace and salvation that it has literally transformed the world. We saw the theme of the book is justification by grace through faith. We saw that in chapter 3 where Paul says the just shall live by faith, and God has used that one passage right there to, to lead some giants of the faith to Christ. Those who have, have made an impact on Christendom came to know Christ through those passages of Scripture in chapter 3. We saw that the first three chapters really focus on sin, that, that, that God demands righteousness, and it can only come about by Him. And in chapters 4 through 5, he, he declares that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. We looked at sanctification in chapters 6 through 8, what it means to, to grow. And then now we've looked at the sovereignty of God, looking at that in chapter 9, and it'll be 10 and 11. Last week we saw that Israel, the nation of Israel, had rejected Christ. And today we're going to look at some reasons, some of the reasons for Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Now, I don't want this to be one of those deals where you say those were valid reasons, those were good excuses. These are not good reasons, but these are some of the reasons as we look at the, the people of Israel, why they rejected the Messiah. So if you would follow along as I read. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. That's pretty powerful truth there. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. That's where they were. For Christ is in the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, in other words, when you believe, you move past that. The, the goal of the law is for us to come to Christ by faith. Then again, as he's talking to, to, to Jews, to Hebrews, he uses lots of Old Testament scripture. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message, or the word, some translations, the message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. Now let me tell you, when I was a brand new Christian, I memorized Romans 10, 9 through 13. This is the heart of so, so many gospel presentations. But look at it in the context. Paul is talking to these Jews who've rejected him. And he's saying, the message, the word, it's right there. It's in your grasp. Here it is. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, that saved word is not a Baptist word. It's not a, a word we made up. It's a biblical word. You will be saved. 
One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's look at some of these reasons now. We'll walk through this passage and hopefully understand how, how, how this could even happen, how the Jews with all that they had were, were still rejecting the Messiah as a nation. Number one, they did not see their need for salvation. Bottom line, they didn't see their need. He, he mentions in verse one there, his heart's desire in prayer to God is concerning them for their salvation. He's talked about everything they've had. Remember in the earlier chapters, we talked about how they had the circumcision and they had the to the, the sign of the covenant, and they had the law, and they had all these things were to, to remind them, to, to point to Christ by faith. They, they rejected all that. They did not see themselves as having a need for Christ. I was thinking about this this week, thinking about the story of the, we call it the prodigal son. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 15, and we focus on the son that went away and used all his father's inheritance and, and wasted away in righteous living, and, and immorality, and he comes back to his father, and the, the father says, go kill the fatted calf, bring a, the robe, and, and let's, let's, let's have a celebration because my son was lost. He has now been found. But look at verse 25 if you, can, if you want to turn there in Luke chapter 15. I don't think it's in your notes. There's this celebration that's called for because the lost son has been found. Now his older son, the elder brother, the elder son, was in the field and he came near the house and he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because, he's ha- because he has him back safe and sound. Look at verse 28. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never give me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets and with prostitutes and slaughtered the fatted, you've slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Here's the, the attitude of the older brother. I've stayed faithful to you, father, and now you, you celebrate when this lost son comes home, my brother comes home? And we talk a lot about the importance of the, the, the reception of the Father and forgiveness and all that. This parable was told to the children of Israel. He was saying to them, you are the older son. The, the, the Gentiles represent the ones that have, have, have strayed, who've rejected me, but now they're coming to me, and you can't celebrate that because you don't even see that you have a need. They thought they had it all together like the elder brother. Why in the world would the father not have a big deal about them because they were his people? We looked at that uh, last week or the week before. They didn't see a need. By the way, you can be clear in your presentation of the gospel. You can have the scripture. You can even go to Romans chapter 10. You can, you can have a, a perfect, logical uh, presentation of the truth that the just shall live by faith, that salvation is in Christ alone. But if a person doesn't see their need for salvation, they're not going to be willing to listen. And that's my prayer whenever I share Christ. God, let that person see their need for a Savior. Let their person see, that person see their need. So number one, they didn't see their need. That's one reason why they rejected him. They were like the older brother. Number two, their zeal was misplaced. 
their zeal was misplaced. Look at verse, verse 2. We're back in Romans 10. I don't want to confuse you any more than I already do. I can testify about them, the, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were zealous. Paul's own testimony. Remember his story? The one writing this letter? He was zealous to kill Christians and get them locked up in prison because he thought they were against the, the, the word of God and, and, and they were, they were a, a cult, a sect, and he, he was out persecuting them. He was zealous about that. When he met Christ, his zeal got redirected the right way. That's this picture. He says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Pharisees took the the word of God and they added to it. The scribes sat down and created what's called the Mishnah. It it, it codified the scribal law. And then there was the Talmud, which was a commentary on the Mishnah. And here's what the Pharisees did. They didn't just say, "You, you... the religious Jews, you didn't just have to obey God's word, but you had to obey the scribal teachings of the word, and then you had to obey the the Talmud commentary on the mission. So they were holding people accountable to what they had added to and added to and added to and added to. The Sabbath law was one of those things they debated. I've just got a couple of illustrations here of how zealous they were. See, they were told to, to have that day to be a holy day to the Lord. Make it a day of rest set aside for him. By the way, Christ is our Sabbath now. They didn't know that. They they defined what a burden was. They didn't want to carry a burden on the Sabbath. They they decided that you could get milk on the Sabbath enough for one swallow. Beyond that, it was sin. You could carry a spoon weighing no more than one fig. If you did carry one that weighed more than that, then you were working. Um, They had this incredible discussion about whether you could wear this certain kind of jewelry. Could a mother pick up a child? Was that called labor? They even had it down to, could a man with a wooden leg wear his wooden leg on the Sabbath? Because that would be, la- that would be considered work. And it just got ridiculous. For Jesus said, you, you tithe on these little, these little portions of, of herbs, yet in the bigger scheme of things, you're missing it. They had a zeal, but it was misplaced. Well, it's common in our culture today, isn't it? Just to say, if a person's passionate and zealous, they must be right. They can be wrong. Did you know that? They didn't see their need. Their zeal was misplaced. Number three, the third reason they rejected the Messiah, they were proud and self-righteous. Look at verse three. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God, and that's, remember we talked about by grace, that provision, the cross that Andy led us to sing about a moment ago, because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. They were too proud. Everything in the Jewish religion pointed to Christ. Everything. The covenants, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the temple, all of that pointed to Christ. They had all of that, but they were so proud and so self-righteous, they refused to learn. And when Paul came and began to teach them, that's one reason why the book of Romans is so packed with so much truth for the, for the, for the Jews, so that they could understand from Old Testament Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. They were so proud and self-righteous, they didn't want to learn. You know anybody like that? You try to share the truth with them, but they think they've got it all together. They don't need to learn a thing. That's where they were. They were the older brother 
proud, self-righteous. Number four, and this is the, the part of this passage, they misunderstood the purpose of the law. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. In chapter 3, Paul wrote, no one will be justified by the works of the law. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. That's, that's just another way of saying that. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. First of all, the law was given to point us to Christ as Messiah. That was the purpose, the initial purpose of the law. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It was there to point us to Christ. For, for Moses writes about righteousness that's from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. You can't be saved by keeping the law. The law was there to point us to Christ. Listen, instead of letting the law point them to Christ, you know what they did? They worshiped the law. Be careful about that. We can do that in our own, in our own culture. We can do that right now. We can worship the things of God and miss the worship of God. One of the things I was told when I was at Southwestern Seminary a few years ago, and one of the, the faculty and, and new student orientations, a guy stood up, I don't remember what professor was, and he said, gentlemen, be careful that you don't fall in love with the work of the Lord so much that you fall out of love with the Lord of the work. Be careful, Christ follower, that you don't just fall in love with serving and ministry and all that stuff because it takes your, your eyes off of the reality that you're doing it. It's worship. The, the, all these things that we have, even the, the symbols that we use there to point us to Christ, and that's what the Jews needed to learn. They, they needed to understand the law was there to point them to Christ. Paul wrote of it elsewhere that it is our schoolmaster, our tutor, to, to carry us to school. That, that's that, that word is to the person that accompanied the, the rich kid to school so that he could hand him off to the, to the teacher so they could learn. The law was there to carry them to Christ, and they missed it because they were proud. Here's another truth in verse 6 and 7. Nothing needs to be done in order to achieve salvation. Nothing needs to be done in order for us to achieve salvation. I'll, I'll explain this, okay? Don't panic. Look at verse 6 and 7. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. By the way, uh, looking at the, the part of Deuteronomy kind of takes away from the external part of the law and goes to the heart, and that's what he's doing there. Who will, who will uh, say that in your heart who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down to the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Here's the, the heart there. He's trying to say nothing needs to be done. I like what Bill Hybels says. He says religion is spelled D-O, do. That's religion. What can I do to make myself pleasing to God? What can I do to make myself acceptable to God? And here's what he says. He says Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. See, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I could do to attain salvation. It's all been done on the cross. Does that make sense? We've been singing about this morning. That's what we've been focusing on. The finished work of Christ on the cross, that makes it possible for me to say, I don't have to do anything else. Christ did it for me. And he, and he words it this way, and I just kind of brought the truth a little so we could understand it better. Number one, we don't have to go to heaven. Christ already came down to us. There's that question, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down? We don't have to go to heaven. Christ already came down. Do you know that the majority of world religions are all about getting to heaven? 
They're all about attaining levels. A lot of them have, have uh, steps or phases or plateaus that you go to until you finally reach, whether it's called nirvana or paradise or heaven or your planet or whatever it is, that you can reach it. And the Bible doesn't speak that way. The Bible speaks, yes, there's a home in heaven prepared for us. But what God did, instead of saying, here's a stairway, he just sent his one and only son to walk with us. He came down to us. He said, here I am. God in the flesh. Look at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. And then you move down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Made his tabernacle. His, his, his life came to live among us. Christ came down to us. That's pretty powerful, folks. He's saying to those Jews, you don't have to, you don't have to, you can't gain it on your own because Christ has already come down. Secondly, we don't need to die for our sin because Christ already died and rose again. Now, verse 7, it's, there's debate about what he's saying there when he says, who will go down to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What my understanding that, that fits, I think, the context here is he's saying, there, there's nothing you can do. You can't die. You can't, you can't pay the price for your sin. Christ already did that for you. Here's what we need to do. We don't need to die for our sin. Christ did that. We need to die to self. Or we lay our, our all on the altar. We just sang about it. I surrender. That's what we need to do. Let me move on. We've been given a message. Let her see. We've been given a message. If you look at verse 8. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. That word can also be translated word. It, it, can, it can focus on the truth that the word has been given. Here's the truth, all right? Number one, the message, the word is truth that must be known. It's not something that's out there pie in the sky. It's not hope so, maybe so. It is a truth, the word that can be known. It must be known. Again, our culture is so, has this so distorted. They, they say if you're zealous about anything, it's okay. Our, our culture basically says, as long as you're sincere, you're okay. It doesn't matter what you believe, our culture says. It doesn't matter if you're sincerely wrong. As long as you're sincere, everything's going to be fine. The Bible doesn't say that. That's, that. that's that zeal not according to knowledge. This message must be known. Not distorted, but based on truth. And two truths here that he mentions. First of all, the person of Jesus Christ, and then the work. The person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Here's this message. Here's this truth. Here's the word. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Stop right there. Jesus is Lord. You know what that means? He is Master, He is Messiah, He is Christ. He is God. That's the deity of Christ, that he is God, and he came to live among us in the flesh. See, God isn't, isn't God, and Jesus is a little God. You know how that, that teaching is distorted. The Bible is true. The Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So this, this, this acceptance of Christ as Savior is, begins with he is Lord. He is God. He is deity. He's master. In Paul's day, everybody in the Roman Empire had to say, Caesar es curios. Caesar es curios. Caesar is Lord. 
And the believers came along, and they, had, they, were, they were taught Christos as Kyrios, Christ is Lord. And if they wouldn't say Kaiser as Kyrios, they'd get executed or persecuted or whatever. They knew that to be a follower of Christ meant I, my allegiance is to no other but to Christ and Christ alone. The person of Christ, his deity. Secondly, the work of Christ. The work of Christ, that he died and rose again. Look at verse 9 again. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Implied in being raised from the dead is that Christ died for us, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the work of Christ. We mentioned that in our connection class this morning, the person and work of Christ. The person, who is he? He's God. What did he do? What's his work? He died on the cross in our place and rose from the dead. The person and work of Christ. That's the message. That's the truth. So for the Jews to come to know Christ, to to accept Messiah, first of all, they had to accept that he was God. And secondly, they had to come to that point where they would say, I believe that he died on the cross in our place and rose again. The person and work of Christ. Let me tell you something, that's, that's what every person needs to understand to come to faith in Christ, that, that, that truth has to be known. I will ask children this, when they, they usually come and say, I want to be baptized, that's, that's where they start. So you have to kind of back up, okay, baptism is important, it's, a, it's letting everybody know that you've been saved, but let's talk about this salvation thing. Talk about making Jesus the boss of your life, let's talk about lordship. And I usually say, who is Jesus? And what did he do? And they don't have to give me a big theological answer. They don't have to quote the Greek and all that stuff. They just need to let me know that they understand that Jesus is God's only son. Died on the cross in their place. That's the person and work of Christ. So this message, this, this truth, it's a truth that must be known. But secondly, this message is a truth that must be believed. We say it all the time. Christianity... A relationship with Christ is not all about intellectual knowledge, knowing the truths, right? That's not all it is. By the way, some of you in this room today have stopped there. You would not debate one thing I've said, that Jesus is God, that he's God's one and only son, that he died on the cross in my place, that he rose again. You would not debate one of those things, intellectually, you know it up here. But Paul says, you have to believe. You have to believe. Verse 11 says it this way, everyone who believes on him, belief, so important. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Now let me just say something about this heart thing. Because we, we have told our kids, you ask Jesus into your heart, and I know there's a big theological debate out there that nowhere in the Bible does it say to do that, that we're distorting that. And, and, but but let, me, let me tell you where I'm coming from here. The Bible speaks of this heart belief, and it's not emotion. It's not emotion. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about the whole self, our identity, who we are, everything about me. We use that word, I, I gave my heart to Kelly. When I fell in love with her, I gave her my heart. Now, did I give her my heart? You know what I mean. He broke my heart. They broke my heart. She broke my heart. Did they really break it? No, we're, we're saying my whole being was shattered by that. We say this person, they, man, they took on that job and they took it on wholeheartedly. Did they peel their heart out and give it to the job? No. 
You say their whole person was put into that. That's what Paul is saying here. So I don't think it's a distortion to say, I need to ask Christ to to take residence, to to come into my heart, to take control. My whole self, I give it to you. I'm believing. It's not just emotion. Some people say, well, the heart, that's all about emotion. We need to focus on the truth. Paul says, the heart, who you are, has to believe. Not just intellectually, but here. Your whole self needs to be given over. Clear. Truth must be believed. I was reading about the Titanic recently. New documentaries keep coming out, new books coming out. Fascinating story. Over 1,500 people died in that tragedy when the the ship hit the iceberg. It was called the ship that even God couldn't sink. Remember that? Reading about that? Only about a third of the passengers lived to tell about the nightmare that night. Here's the greater tragedy. There was lifeboat space for 1,100 people. Out of 20 lifeboats, most of them weren't even filled to capacity. Most of them were less than half full. 700 passengers and crew were rescued. 40% of the total lifeboat spaces remained unfilled. Here's the tragedy there. The rescue was there. They They didn't even have to have another ship to rescue them. The rescue... Vessels were there on the Titanic to save the majority of those people. Why didn't they take advantage of it? They missed the reality that, that you have to act. Some stayed on the boat. They, one of the, they've debated what happened. with Why did so many people not get in a lifeboat? There were some people who stayed on the boat, the, on the ship Titanic, because they never really thought they were going under. They, I don't need to get in that lifeboat. I'm I'm safe. I'm fine. This ship will never sink. I don't want to say Jesus is your lifeboat, but I will take this analogy this way to say he has offered you rescue for your, from your sin and a life of eternity. And if you just say, I've got it okay, I'm, I've got it together, and you never act on it, you haven't believed. You haven't received. In John chapter 1, the Bible says to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave right the privilege to become the children of God. See, to believe is to receive, is to act on it. And I'm going to say it this way. Receiving Jesus Christ as Savior requires a transfer of trust. I think it was Tim Keller that first came up with that statement. I like that. A transfer of trust. Look at verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, to call on Him. It's a transfer of trust. It's to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. However you say it, take up residence, take control, take my whole self. Lord Jesus, I'm I'm transferring trust. Verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, that's a transfer of trust. This is a Hebrew parallelogram or parallelism, and it's stating the same truth two ways. So some people have divided that. Believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth, these are two separate things. They're really the same thing. It's coming to the point of saying, I right now am transferring ownership. I'm transferring the trust Christ. We transfer our hopes, number one, that we can do anything to attain salvation. Transferring any hope that I have that I can do anything. Do you know why some people never accept Christ as Savior? Because they cling to the fact that they still might be able to do something that make themselves uh, appealing and pleasing to God on their own. They think, surely if God is a God of love, surely He wouldn't destine me to eternity in hell. 
Surely if he's a God of love, he wouldn't do that. I'll just be a good person, they say. Look back at verse 3 with me. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God. Can I say it another way? They disregarded God's way of salvation. And attempted to establish their own righteousness. They said, God, I'm rejecting, disregarding your way. I think I can establish my own. But then, I love what Paul says at the last part of that verse. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. See, here, see, where, see where it is here? Not only do I reject the fact that God has a plan, sending his only son to die on the cross for me, I'm going to figure it out myself and get to heaven on my own. I'm going to be a good person. And in doing that, I'm refusing to submit to the authority of God. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty strong. You say, well, pastor, I'm really not doing that. I'm just, I'm an intellectual and I, I don't believe all that stuff. And I'm, I've got my, 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 uh, all these facts, uh, scientific and philosophical facts and stuff. Say what you want. You're not submitting to God, his authority in your life. You have to transfer hope that you can make it on your own. You have to transfer that and just say, I'm, I'm done with that. There's nothing I can do. Secondly, here's what you're doing. I've already said it two or three times. We transfer ownership and control of our lives to Christ. Here's what the Jews needed to do. Verse 3, to realize that God's righteousness was the way, that there's no way they could attain it by themselves, and submit to his way. That's what we need to do. If you're not a Christ follower, if you've never received Christ as Savior, that's where you are. Are you willing to transfer complete control of your life and ownership to Him? When I talk to kids, not only do they need to tell me who Jesus is, what He did, not only do they need to tell me what sin is and claim that they've sinned, I want them to understand they're transferring control of their life to Him. They're making Him the boss of Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We, we lead people in what we call the sinner's prayer. It's a man-made prayer, but it's based on Scripture. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I confess that I'm a sinner. I'm paraphrasing. I confess that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Take up residence. Take control of my life. I promise to fall and obey you. Whatever words that, that is in that prayer, it is not a formula. So let me tell you something. If you prayed a prayer with someone and that's all you did... You didn't get saved. But if you prayed a prayer with someone, and when you did, you transferred ownership and control of your life to Christ, that's when it takes place. Does that make sense? That's, it's, that's when it's a heart matter. Giving of your whole self to Him. Francis Collins is an incredibly credentialed, famous scientist, well-respected in the scientific community. He had some students begin to challenge him about what he believed. One student came to him and said, shared her faith in Christ and said, what about you? What do you believe? And he said, I couldn't, I couldn't say I believed in anything. And then he said, suddenly that became a very thin answer. I don't believe in anything. This is a noted scientist. It said, because of that thin answer, it was very unsettling. He began to study Christian philosophers and read C.S. Lewis and look for this, this what's out there And this is what he said. He said, I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God. And now I was being called to. I was being called to account. 
He says, on that beautiful fall day as I was hiking the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful, unexpected frozen waterfall, hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose, and I surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, God used Romans 1, the natural world, remember we talked about that, to show him his glory. But here's the, here's the point. All of his intellectualism melted away when he got a glimpse of the glory of God. And he knelt down and he said, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. If you haven't done that, I'm inviting you to do that right now. In a moment, we're going to do what we do every Sunday morning. We're going to, we're going to stand to our feet. The worship team's going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to stand right down front here. And if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, we invite you to do this every week. I invite you to come and just let me know. I, I've never done that. I need to be saved. I need to trust Christ. And we'll have a, one of our, our helpers here lead you in that prayer of commitment. But it has to be a decision of your will to transfer ownership to him. I wonder, in a room this size with this many people, how many of you would say, I'm a Christ follower? but I seem to have forgotten that I transferred ownership of everything to him. I seem to have taken over some things, some areas, my family, my relationships, my finances. Maybe you just need to come and kneel at these steps and say, that's my altar of surrender. Lord, again, I'm surrendering that area to you. Pray together.